Um, so today we are in Daniel chapter 2. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm not going to read, I'm going to read the first two verses, but we're going to cover the whole chapter. Um, so Daniel chapter 2, let's pray. And we'll read the text. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we ask that as we um, enter into the story of Daniel, Lord, that you would guide us. Uh, Lord, we have a, a, a larger section today that really is one section. And so, Father, we ask that this story would uh, come alive to us. May we see uh, and feel and understand the things that are occurring within this story. Uh, Lord, we pray that, um, that the main things would stand out to us and that our understanding that you are God who is control and sovereign over all would penetrate our hearts, Lord, uh, that we would be able to, to live our lives in a way uh, that has stability, that has an anchor grounded deep within you, um, that, our, that our hope is in you firmly, regardless of the circumstances of our life or the news events or the things around us, um, that, that our soul would be uh, just anchored in you, that we would be grounded, uh, Lord, that um, we would have peace in the midst of a chaotic world. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came, they came in and stood before the king. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us uh, to make sense of the story. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you grabbed your bulletin, there's an insert that we'll refer to here in a little bit. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 is 49 verses, which is a lot of text. And so... Um, I had to consolidate in, in portions. We will go through every verse, but to save time, I'm not going to read the whole chapter and then kind of backtrack through it. Um, as we enter into Daniel chapter 2, we are continuing our study of Revelation, which requires us to back up into Daniel, which is sort of the uh, book of Revelation of the Old Testament. And so things begin to unfold in Daniel that then sort of are further revealed in Revelation for us to sort of navigate. Um, the theme of Daniel is that there is a God in heaven and he is sovereign over the nations and he is directing and shaping world history towards his own end. And today's chapter is very much uh, fits within that context. And so we begin with verse 1. We know who Nebuchadnezzar is. This at the time of writing, at the time that this was written, this is the, the most powerful man in the world. I mean, he was ruthless. The world was at his fingertips. He was powerful. And early in his reign, we're told that he had dreams. Dreams might not be the right word. Nightmares might be um, a, a better description. That he had this recurring nightmare that was troubling him deep within his soul, um, we're skipping ahead to verses 31 to 36, I mentioned the handout. Um, he, this, it's one dream that happened multiple times. And so this dream he has is this, 
this image that's in five parts. There's like sort of the head, the torso, the, the waist, the legs, and the feet. Um, and as he sees this image, all of a sudden this stone that isn't cut with human hands comes and it basically is launched at the statue and the statue goes into the dust and is disintegrated. And then that stone sort of plants itself and then it begins to grow and grow and grow and sort of overtaking everything. This, this image is terrifying to the king. Uh, he's unsettled at his core. Um, as I think about this statue and the image he saw, the image that keeps coming to my mind is the picture of the towers of 9-11. So if you, on September 10th, um, 2001, said, hey, tomorrow these two towers are basically going to just turn to dust and go to the ground, I'd be like, yeah, right, whatever. And then if you were there or you saw it or you've seen video of it, to see the towers like that just basically to go to the ground is like, what? How did that happen? And so this image sort of has that sort of effect on this, this king. And so he's troubled by it. And so he calls out to all of the magicians, uh, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so these guys that come and they stand before the king. Now, I think, or for me maybe, that I think of these guys and I think, oh, these guys are just a bunch of wackos, a bunch of charlatans, that are, or maybe that's the wrong word, but the, a bunch of... Um, just guys that are like the, you know, the, I can't even think of, you know, the tarot cards on the corner, like pay us money and we'll do this stuff. These guys were actually really smart historically. They, they did amazing things. I forget the guy's name, but in this era, shortly after Daniel, one of these astronomers, he predicted how long a year, or he determined how long a year was. And modern day um, people have like, have said that this guy was within 20 minutes of, of guessing how long a year was. So don't look at these guys like they're not smart. These are guys that were very accomplished and very brilliant. If you don't think that the ancient people were, were, were smart, look at things like the pyramids and like various things. Like, how did they build that? Like, how? Like, they didn't have a caterpillar back then. Like, how did they pull that off? And so these guys are standing before the king, the most powerful man of their time that could kill them at his word in a moment. And so in verse 3, the king says to them, I had a dream, singular, not plural, like he had this dream multiple times. It was disturbing to him to the point where he needed to bring in some help. And he says, my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. The thing I saw was troubling to me. I can't rest. And so the Chaldeans, verse 4, spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Seems reasonable there before him. They say, okay, you had this dream that's troubling you. Just let us know what the dream is, and we'll kind of go from there. We'll be fine. Just, just let us know what it is, and we'll interpret it. Um, a, a side point that I want to point out to you in verse 4, it says that they began, uh, they responded to the king in Aramaic, and so from now until I think it's, uh, let's look down here, I think it's seven, chapter 7, verse 28, the book of Daniel, the language shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic through chapters 2 through 7. It's an indicator that, that uh, 
that this message was to the Gentiles, the first part. Later it would shift um, to the Hebrews. It would go back to the Hebrew language, saying that God is the God of um, Israel. Here it's saying that God is the God over the Gentiles. And so they're speaking, uh, and the book of Daniel continues in this language of Aramaic. I don't need to say much more about it. So they're there, and they say, okay, tell us a dream, we're good. And the king says, uh uh-uh. I'm not telling you what the dream was. You tell me what the dream was. And it's like, what? Now there's scholars are split down the middle. Did the king know his dream or did he not know the dream? Half of them say he doesn't know the dream. The other half says he knows the dream. He's trying to sort of, uh, if they are as talented as they say they are, they should be able to give him the dream and the interpretation of it. I'm sort of like down the middle because... No, I'm with Dave. I keep sort of a notepad. It's just in my phone, my notes, that if something wakes me up in the middle of the night, I'll, I'll make a little thing. I don't go into computer software stuff. That's not the stuff that's bouncing around in my brain. Um, and I've had, like, troubling dreams. I mean, troubling because they're like, that was weird. Like, and then you wake up and you're like, was that like a dream? Like, I remember this component, and then there was this component, but I can't quite remember the details. And if somebody was to tell me my dream, I'd go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Why is my brain so warped with stuff? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And so I don't know. I, 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 I think that the king had a, a vague idea because his dream was repeating to him. I don't think he could make sense of it, but it was enough that he was deeply troubled by it. And so verse 5, the king replied to the Chaldeans. He says, the commandment for me is firm. This, this isn't uh, make your best offer with the king. What I'm telling you is, is firm. And he's going to start with the, the stick and then get to the carrot. He said, the commandment for me is firm. Verse 5, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made as a rubbish heap. So if you don't come through, you're done. And I'm going to kill all of those that fall into the same vocation as you in my land. And then verse 6, the carrot. But if you (laughs) declare the dream and the interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. It's like, come on, there's a carrot here. If you get this, you're going to have everything. If you don't, I'm going to take off the carrot and I'm going to bring the stick at you. So hurry up. Tell me what I'm dreaming about. He's getting a little anxious. And they say in verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the, please let the king tell this, his servants his dream. And we would be more than happy to give you the interpretation of it. But you've got to give us something so that we can work with it. And the king in verse 8 said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. <laughs> sure they are. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you? You just been told if you, told if you don't get this right, you're going to be torn from limb to limb and your house is going to be destroyed. And he says, inasmuch as you've seen the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know 
that you can declare to me its interpretation. If you can tell me the interpretation, you should be able to tell me the dream. So I'm calling your bluff. And I'm not joking because what I saw was terrifying. And so I need you to explain to me the dream and then, or tell me what the dream was and then explain it to me. And if you can do that, I know you're legitimate. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. This is impossible. Like what you're asking is impossible. And there is no one else that can declare to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. He's like, king, we would, we would love to interpret this for you, but what you're asking, no king has ever asked this before, and there's nobody that can do this. So in verse 12, the king flies off the handle. And because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Seems like a bit of an overreaction, just in my opinion. It's not unusual for tyrants like this to fly off the handle. Um, Nietzsche, who was the philosopher who influenced Hitler, he had a quote of something like, that if there was a God, he couldn't live with it because the idea that, that it wasn't him would drive him mad. Like, if there's a God, it would have to be me. And this king who is on his throne, who is over the whole world, who had everything at his fingertips, couldn't make sense of this terrifying dream that was given to him. And he's furious because he recognizes that he's not ultimately in control. We, we saw this by Herod. Remember when the, the birth of Jesus was foretold and he was coming, this guy says, wait a minute, there's prophecies concerning that there's going to be a king that's coming? Well, let's deal with this by killing all of the male babies that are under two years old. And before we come down too hard on these guys, we need to realize that there's a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. Like, why do you freak out? Like, why do you have a temper tantrum? Why do you get mad when you don't get your own way? And I know for me that when I get frustrated, it's because I'm not God and I'm not in control and a situation has sort of unraveled beyond what I can deal with. And so this guy is troubled. And in verse 13, he sends out orders and he says, so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they look for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So as they were put through this indoctrination, as they were uh, under captivity and they excelled the thing that God gifted them in that rose them to prominence is now the thing that has their heads basically on. There's, there's, a, there's an order against them to be executed. So in verse 14, the Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. Of course, <laughs> this is an area that you'd want to be very diplomatic in. The word goes out that all of these guys, including Daniel and his, his guys, are going to be executed. Daniel gets word about this. He has wisdom from above discretion and discernment, and so he goes to Arioch, 
who is the captain of the king's bodyguard. But that word bodyguard really should be translated, I shouldn't say really, it could be translated executioners. (laughs) So Daniel gets wind that the that the killing squads are coming to execute all of the guys. And so Daniel finds the head guy, Arioch, the guy who's been instructed to kill Daniel, and he approaches this guy. And in verse 15, we see that he said to Arioch, the king's commander of the executioners, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? <laughs> like... I know you're supposed to kill us, but what's, can you sleep on it for 24 hours? Can we, can you give us a few minutes? <laughs> and so then Ariok kind of informed him on the matter. He's like, listen, the king's been having these nightmare, like this nightmare apparently, and it's been troubling him. And he brought all the, the top magicians and whatchamacallits before him. And he said, tell me what my dream was and explain it to me. And they couldn't do it. And he's furious in the order. Like, we're, like I'm supposed to kill you right now. He's like, all right, I get your situation. Just give me, just give me some time, maybe like overnight. Can, you, can we come back and deal with this in the morning? Uh, I, I might be able to come up with a plan. Verse 16. So Daniel went out and he requested of the king that he would uh, give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, I don't think Daniel actually went to the king because we'll see when he sees the king that he sort of introduced to him on this matter for the first time. I, I think by going to Arioch, it's Ariok is representing the king, and so he says, okay, you're giving us overnight. And Daniel basically races home. <laughs> hey, boys, I, we, got, we need to get praying. Verse 17, then Daniel went to the house and informed the friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are the four guys, including Daniel, that includes Daniel in the number, that rose up to prominence. These are the guys that restricted their diets. They were exceptional. They were... 10% greater than all of the other guys that were in captivity. They were in a very special place. And so they, he tells them about the matter so that they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Guys, we need to have a prayer meeting, a prayer meeting like we've never had before because if we don't get this answer, we're going to be killed tomorrow. And while the theme of Daniel is the sovereignty of God in all matters and that God's in control, this, the Daniel, while trusting in God's sovereignty, doesn't necessarily believe in fatalism. It means like, well, we're here in captivity. I guess we're supposed to get killed, so let's just go forward and get killed. He says, no, like we're here in captivity. I don't know what God is doing. I don't understand what's happening this time. But let's seek God and their prayer. God, we want to live. Would you help us by giving us some mercy concerning the mystery of this dream so that we might live another day? We would really appreciate that of you, God. And then in verse 19, well, did I, so that they might, let me just read verse 18. So they, they might request compassion from God, from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So somehow God 
shows Daniel and these three guys this dream, this nightmare that the king is having. And chapter 2, you could really break up. Like, we could spend a long time, like, on Daniel's prayer. But I'm sort of focused on keeping the, the main things front and center in the, in the book of Daniel for us, especially as we're trying to get through Revelation. And sometimes if you look at the picture too close, you lose sort of what's happening here. And so there's this beautiful prayer that we can learn a lot from, but I just have to fly through it. And we see this, this prayer, verse 20, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kingdoms. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge of men understand men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. This is This is a guy in captivity, a guy whose life isn't necessarily going well. He's been ripped away from his family and he says, Lord, I give you thanks. I praise you. And as we get towards Thanksgiving, which we're right on the cusp of. There is so much to the Christian about the thing that, one of the things that we should be known for is just gratitude, just thankfulness to God in all things. And he says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, verse 23, you have given me wisdom and power, even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch. This is the chief or the commander of the executioners. He goes back to him the next morning, whom the king had appointed to destroy, to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and spoke to him as follows. Stop. Not in the name of love before I start singing that. <laughs> but maybe, you know, I don't... Uh, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the presence, into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. This guy's a total rat. <laughs> Did he find this guy? No, Daniel went to him twice. First he said, time out, give me 24 hours. I think I can do this. Just give us some time. Buy me some time and I'll take care of it. Then the next day he goes to him. He says, take me to the king. I can, I can give you an interpretation, please. Like, here I am. Don't kill anybody. Let me go see the king. Then Arioch says, hey, king, I found a guy. You want to kill them all, but I got the guy for you. Just when he declares this to you, don't forget about me as you're sort of giving out Christmas bonuses, you know. Well, they wouldn't have had Christmas bonuses back then. This is uh, pre-Christ. But, but he's kind of like putting himself on display, which is going to be totally the opposite of Daniel before the king. Verse 26, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? I so wish we had, like, movie from this. To see Arioch, hey, king, you know Daniel. 
He can do this for you. I found him. And then he's kind of off to the sides because he doesn't know what, like, all he has is that Daniel said he could do it. But then look how Daniel reacts, like what he says in response. And I just see the color like going out of Ariok's face like, oh no, this isn't good. <laughs> Daniel answered before the king, as far as the mystery about what the king has inquired, <laughs> no wise men, nobody can do this. It's impossible. Neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to, to declare it to the king. I see Ariok over there going, that rascal? Like, I just put my... <sighs> kind of reminds me of the old Mordecai and Haman back in Esther when he built all these things down, and it's like, uh-oh. <clears throat> but thankfully for his sake, you know, he's not done. Daniel, who has the dream, has the interpretation of the dream, before the most powerful man in the planet says, I can't do this. No magician, nobody can do this. Verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. So now, Daniel, as he speaks, he says, God has shown you something that's going to happen in the future. This, this is a critical place in Daniel this um, has skeptics saying the Bible is not trustworthy, it's a fraud, because the accuracy in which Daniel prophesies the future is impossible. The detail that he sort of foretells, it, skeptics say this is impossible, this is, Daniel was written after all of this stuff, and, and people of God have like added this in to sort of make a stronger case. They don't have any sort of evidence to support that. All the evidence points to the dating of Daniel in 605 B.C., starting all the way uh, through the end of exile, before all of this. So Daniel says to the king, Hey, king, the God in heaven, my God, he's given you this, this dream to, show, to give you a glimpse into the future of things that are going to unfold and he says, this is your dream and the visions in your mind while you were in bed. As for you, O king, verse 29, <clears throat> while on your bed your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing within me more than any other living man but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel says, it's not about me. It's not my wisdom. It's not anything I've done. I am just a man. Daniel has this reaction when he stands before Belteshazzar later, I think that's in chapter 5, and he says, I need you to interpret this dream. I'm going to give you purple robes and gold, and I'll place you at number 3 in the kingdom. Daniel says, I don't need all that stuff. Give it to somebody who cares. I'm going to tell you what this dream means simply because God wants you to see something. This is a humble, humble man. And so then verses 31 through 35, you have the handout. And he describes, he says, this is the image that you saw. There's a head of gold. 
there's a chest of silver. Then there's a, a middle section of bronze. There's legs of iron. And then there's feet with ten toes. And then he says, out of nowhere, this stone that wasn't cut with hands sort of blasts out of the side, hits the feet. The whole thing goes up like dust, like when you're, when, when I don't do this, um, is it winnowing? The, uh, this is right, you should read it. Um, became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. I don't do a lot of threshing these days. <clears throat> but it's kind of like the picture that they're threshing and the dust and the wind's blowing it away as they separate. It's like it becomes like nothing. And then the stone as it plants, it just like builds and builds and builds. And Daniel's like, that's a dream you're talking about, right? And I just can imagine the king saying, that's exactly the dream. Now tell me, what does it mean? <clears throat> Verse 36. <clears throat> This was the dream. Now we, now I want you to catch that. Daniel's before the king. Not only has he not, he's deflected any sort of like anything from himself. Now he has his three buddies that are with him who are praying. They collectively, now we will do this. We will tell you its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. I, like, we need a pause here. The historical situation Israel's in captivity. This is a ruthless war that's happened. Remember, the northern part of the kingdom was taken captivity in 722 B.C. Uh, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is a story of Daniel, they were attacked and taken into captivity in three waves, starting in 605 B.C., ending in 586 B.C. when they destroyed the temple. People were executed their, everything they know was pillaged. Seventy or so young men were ripped away from their families, indoctrinated into the way of thinking of the Babylonians. Daniel is one of these guys. He stands before this king who probably has executed Daniel's family, who's done horrific things to his people. Daniel's not in his line, and he stands before him and he says, my God has placed you in this ultimate authority. They're so, like, as we go into an election year, and like my assumption is that most Christians in, are conservative, and we reside within a state that is not, and it's so easy for us to look at the election ballot and to freak out and to go, what's my exit strategy? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. But for us to pray, to seek God, to fill out your ballot, to submit it, and to say, God, Whatever happens, even though I don't understand it, even though I don't like it, even though I don't get along with it, you're sovereign. And our governor in California presently, like he was appointed by God, the scripture says. You make sense of it, because I mean, like, I mean, in my humanity, it's a struggle. Like, it's like, oh, man. 
But here I stand. Okay, God, you're in control. Daniel says to them, think about these words rippling out to those that were exiled. This is like bomb on their soul. There is a God who's in control, and it's our God. And he has placed you into this position. And then he says at the end of verse 38, he says, you, king, you're the head of gold. And I can see the king sitting up in his chair. I like this guy. Okay, let's, let's, let's carry on. And so then Daniel begins to, like, looking back at the, the thing in your, the, in your bulletin, if you didn't grab one, there's extras out there. But then he lists these four different things. So he's, he says, you, king, are the head of gold. We know that he ruled Babylon. This is the first for all, all scholars um, from like biblical scholars to historians, like it's, it's universally agreed. From Daniel's position, he's speaking to the head of the statue, King Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned the world from 605 BC to 539. Then he says, after you, another kingdom is going to arise and it's made out of silver. And this, we know, is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the dates are there, I don't, so to spare time. Then he says, then there's a third section, bronze. After that, this other kingdom's going to come. And this is Greece with Alexander the Great, who then conquered the world, who changed the language so that everybody had to speak Koine Greek. And then after Alexander the Great, a new empire rose. And that was Rome, which existed from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D., and Rome was powerful. So these four kingdoms are going to arise. He lays it out for him. And then by we, the time we come to verse 41, we get down to the toes and the feet. And I want to guard myself from spending too much time here. Everybody agrees with the first four. You get to the fifth one, there's some varying opinions. This is when we go back to the book of Revelation. I say, well, I'm presenting from like the position that I am adhering to. You can go back and listen to that if you want. Um, I believe that this fifth kingdom, this divided kingdom, it's still for us is still future. Like we don't, it's hard for us to yet know. You can, you can link this to Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. There's, uh, I'm all, there's a ton of a lot of different things throughout these visions. So Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, and then Revelation 17. All, like most scholars agree that these are all like one image that's sort of like played out in different ways but it's one historical event that's being prophesied. So we are still looking future. And he says these feet, it's like they're, they're mixed, they're not strong. And in verse 44, the stone, remember that stone that was cut out? He says in the days of those kings, these, when we get to that fifth kingdom that are, that are, the feet that are mixed, and there, there's so much speculation about this, and there's like, 
At the end of the day, when you're speculating, you're speculating. But what he says, in, in, in those days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will not, never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, gold, that image of 9-11, the statue coming crashing down, the great God has made known to the king which will take place in the future, so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You can go to the next slide, please, Abigail. So this is a different slide. I don't want to leave you guys too distracted, but this is like another image. Everybody's certain about the first four. Then you get down to this one, modern powers, but then you have the picture of the stone not cut from human hands, which is believed to be Jesus Christ, the rock. How is Jesus cut not with human hands? Think about young Mary in the field. In Luke one. 30 through 33, when the angel appears to her, and she says, young, you, young Mary, you're about to conceive a child, and his kingdom will have no end. See, like 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 14 even seems, most people, like, that seems to be too old. Young Mary, like, how, how can this be? I'm, I'm a virgin. And we see this Christ born of a virgin, not cut with human hands, outside of creation, enters human history. He lives his life. He begins teaching about the kingdom, all of the things that he shared that we see in the Gospels. And then as he makes his triumphal entry on Lamb Selection Day, as he enters in, in Matthew 21, verse 44, he says something that, in light of this passage, really like is powerful. He says, and he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So if you come to Christ and you throw your life upon him, he's going to break you. But if you stand there and you reject and you reject and you reject, one day every knee will bow at Christ and he's going to plow over you and destroy you into pieces. These are Jesus' words. Then we know the story. He goes to the cross. He dies. He raises from the dead. He interacts with the disciples, the apostles for 40 days. These guys spend lots of time with him. And I'm guilty and a lot of us are guilty of kind of making fun of them at the ascension. They're sitting there, he's about to ascend, and he says, Lord, at this, at this time, Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he's, uh, um, no, excuse me, Acts 1, verse 6 and 7, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so Jesus says, it's not, that, it's not for you to know the time. They had a good question. These guys spent more time with Jesus and him talking about his kingdom that was coming. And then after he raises from the dead, they have 40 days with him. They certainly knew that he was teaching them about the kingdom. And so they said, Lord, is this, is this the time? And he says, it's not for you to know the time. He doesn't say you have a bad question. 
And then Peter, after the ascension, he's standing before, as in one of Peter's great speeches, Acts 4, 11 through 12, he describes Jesus as the stone which the builders rejected that has become the capstone or the cornerstone, the, the most critical stone. As we speed along through what the Bible has to say, we find ourselves in Revelation. And this story, this image fits within the story of Revelation. And as we eventually get back to Revelation, and I handle that middle section, chapter 6, six through 18, which deals with the 70th week of Daniel. Don't worry, you don't have to understand what that means at this point. But there's a time of wrath that's coming. 69 and weeks has unfolded, and then the 70th week is going to resume. And there's this great tribulation. At the end of this tribulational period, we come to Revelation chapter 19. And this picture of Christ, the rock, this is what it says. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16 reads, John is speaking, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True and is Righteous. He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe, on his thigh, his name was written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So you get this vast picture that Daniel begins to share that some reason God gives this pagan king this image. And I think it's because it's the missionary heart of God that God wants the Gentiles also to know what he's doing. And he speaks to this king, you might be all powerful, but God gave it to you. And as you go out, these are all of the nations that are going to arise. And there's going to be this one sort of coalition of nations. But even then, Christ will return the premillennial reign of Christ where he's going to come down, he's going to destroy all nations, that stone that plants itself and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and his kingdom will have no end. And so here we are in the Christ's kingdom has come. We're all ready, but not yet. We, we live in this place where the king has come. Philippians 3.10, I think it says that our citizenship is not in heaven, like, here we are, aliens in this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're awaiting our king to come, and he's going to come. And this king, although it seems like this world is chaotic, he's still in control. And so we can rest easy as we cast our votes, as the world seems to be falling apart. Because I can tell you, America, every country you can think of is going to come toppling down when Christ returns. Period. So keep our eyes on the big picture. Now, how's the king going to respond to this? Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel, and he gave orders to present him 
an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer, a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made the request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. So these three guys, these four guys kind of go their separate ways. Daniel stays under the king. These three guys go over, and they sort of rule, and their, their story's going to pick up. And what do we do with this reaction of Nebuchadnezzar? At, at first glance, it looks like he has a, a repentant heart, a converted heart. But then we pick up next week in verse 1 with Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and he set it up so that people could worship him as God. And I like what Alistair Begg often says, it's easy to be charmed by the gospel but not changed by the gospel. And so Nebuchadnezzar was charmed by it. He saw this, this was... This was interesting to him, but he wasn't really changed. And we see that going into chapter 3. And so as we close, we need to be reminded that the theme of Daniel is there's a God in heaven. He is sovereign over all the nations. He's directing and shaping world history towards his own end. This God is doing something in our midst that we can't fathom. We look around, we read the newspapers, you see the evil in this world. You see the corruption. You see dictators doing all kinds of crazy things, and it doesn't make sense. But we have a God who's revealed himself to us in the scriptures, and he says, don't worry, time is in my hands. Things are going to unfold. But a day is coming when I'm going to return, and all of these kingdoms will be decimated, and there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Well, he doesn't say a new sheriff in town. The king of kings and the Lord of lords will come to reign and to rule with an iron fist. And so the question is, what have you done with this Jesus? Have you fallen on him and broken yourself? Have you humbled yourself before him and given your life to him? and Said, Lord, my life is yours. You created me. You knew about me. You formed me long before the world was existed. You've sent your son so that I might have life, and I want to give my life to you. I don't understand what's going on, but I trust that you're in control. And I love the stability that Daniel shows in a terrible situation. And I would warn those of us that may be charmed by God, charmed by the man. See, it says that he worshiped Daniel. It doesn't say he worshiped God. If you go back and you read it, he was charmed by the pastor's words, not necessarily by the God that the pastor was preaching. So if I could encourage us, I would encourage all of us to truly place your faith in God to know that he is in control and there's no situation that's out of his control. You might not like it. You, this whole story is about a young man that was ripped from his family and taken into captivity. And while under captivity, to the man who did all sorts of evil to his people, he says, you've been placed here by the God Almighty. All of your power comes from him. And I think that there's a lesson in that for us as Christians as we live in our nation that is drifting away from God. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the story.
of Daniel. I thank you for this young man that grows and matures within this story. He becomes an old man by the end of Daniel. Lord, I thank you for the wisdom that you gave him for the discernment, discretion, uh, tact as he dealt with those around him who are far from believers. Lord, as we look around this world, as we look at our life, as we see things from the micro level to the macro level of the world, life can get overwhelming at times, God. And it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding that we could step back from the painting and see the big picture that regardless of all of the situations that we see, all of the things that give us anxiety and fear at night, whether it's cancer, a relationship, uh, finances, the list we could go on and on about things that sort of bring turmoil to our souls. And so God, we step back from these things and we're reminded that you are in control and that you're working towards an end. And so, Father, I pray that you would take our suffering, you would take our anguish, and that you would use it for your glory. May we uh, display your mercy and your grace to a world around us that needs you desperately but doesn't understand it. So, God, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.